This is Acts 11. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave to us who believed in Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then even to Gentiles, God has gained repentance that leads to life. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to God. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Thanks, nice job. Give her a round of applause. That's awesome. So, you got two great awesome things. The, the song, awesome, and then that reading. <laughs> Hope you guys are enjoying the summer. I know I am. Uh, I think this is probably my ninth summer here in 
in Wisconsin, uh, having grown up in Chicago and moved here from Gurney, uh, the weather's just been awesome. It's just great. You can get out and walk. And if you are a hunter and a fisher, I would imagine this is a good time. Hiker, this is a good time of year. This morning, we're going to uh, continue in the series, Recalibrating uh, a Gospel for All People. And what we've been seeing uh, the last few weeks as uh, we see the exploits of the disciples witnessing to uh, an Ethiopian eunuch, witnessing in Samaria, uh, uh, bringing the gospel to Romans in Caesarea, and now here in chapter 11 in Antioch, is we're seeing that the gospel is beginning to spread to all nations, and it's beginning to change the minds of the Jewish Christians regarding what the gospel is all about. They're starting to see that God is doing something new. He's saving people without uh, uh, having them to become Jewish, with, uh, without converting them to J Judaism, which was the Old Testament practice. He's doing uh, a new thing. And so we want to continue in that uh, this discussion this morning. Uh, one of my favorite films of all time is a film called Remembering the Titans. Uh, this is the story about T.C. Williams High School football team in Alexandria, Virginia in 1971. A real brief, brief, brief backdrop. In 71, there was a Supreme Court decision that was made that allowed busing to integrate schools. And Alexandria, like many cities throughout the South and actually even the North, was segregated. They had three separate schools and a lot of rivalry and tradition. Once this changed, they decided to go from three high schools to two junior high schools where all the freshmen and sophomores would go from throughout the city, and then one senior high school, T.C. Williams. And at T.C. Williams, then all of the kids, juniors and seniors, would come to high school. And this film, African-American coach Herman Boone, portrayed by Denzel Washington, tries to introduce a racially diverse team in Alexandria. And a actor Will Patton, who's a another of my favorite character actors, portrays Bill Yost, and he was a former head coach at a different school, at one of those schools that was closed, and now he's gotta come and work for Herman Boone. And so the story is about how they learn to work together and how they take these, these three different uh, programs and make one outstanding program. In the film, they, they come together at this grueling preseason camp. Now, I never played football, my kids never did, but I know this is about the time of year when in Middleton and Verona and, and even in Madison, kids take about a week and they do two three-a-day practices. So imagine two three-a-day practices out in the grueling sun, uh, running and so forth. And in the midst of that, they're trying to break down racial barriers, long-standing racial barriers. And so they're bunking together. So you got black and white kids and Hispanic kids that are doing their own thing and they live together now. And then they have these exercises where they ask them to explore their history and past. And so over this two week period, what happens is this team starts to come together and they turn out to be a dominant football team. They even win the, the large school state championship. And in fact, when they rank all the high schools at the end of the season, they, they find that this team was considered the second best team in the whole country. And when you talk to citizens of Alexandria, even to this day, they can speak to that time of integration and how they thought the city was being spread apart, being torn apart. 
and how these two coaches and how these players showed unity on and off the field and how it transformed the community. So Alexandria changed. The city was renewed because of the faith and perseverance of two coaches and a bunch of high school football players. They didn't allow their racial boundaries, their economic boundaries to divide them. And now they have a legacy that endures to this day. So in Acts 11, what we see, we begin to see more clearly that God has a plan to create one new people from two different people. And in fact, all the different um, diversity that there are among Gentiles, God is taking the Jews and with all this national diversity and culture, he is creating one new people. Now, it was said of old times that God would bring the Gentiles into the faith. It was not a new prophecy, it's old. God talking of the Messiah, it's too, it's, it's too small of a thing for you to be my servant. He's talking about the anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. That's too small. I will make you a light to the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And again in Isaiah, he says, I, the Lord, have called you the Messiah in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the Gentiles, to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. And so the, the Jewish people, the Jewish Christians, they understood that God was going to enfold all the nations into the faith. They didn't understand why. What was new to them is that without the Gentiles having to be circumcised, without them having to adhere to the Jewish food laws, without them having to adhere to the festivals, God was going to bring everybody into the faith by hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, by believing in that gospel, by receiving the Holy Spirit, every person in the world would come to Jesus Christ. And this was mind-boggling for, for, for them. And so the, the theme of this morning is this that God has created a new people, the Christians, to destroy old barriers of ethnicity and culture. And so as we look at this text um, from uh, in chapter 11, verses one through 30, we're gonna see kind of three movements. God does this uh, through uh, the first movement from verses one to 18 is this, that he calls them to embrace a new program. So these people have to go from criticism to wonder in these, ver in these verses. So here's what happens. So Peter comes back after going to, to Caesarea and after this phenomenal miracle of the Gentiles coming to faith. And he goes back to, to Jerusalem and it has already caused quite a firestorm. And here's what the text says. Uh, you would think maybe they might get a hero's welcome. That wasn't quite the case. So when Peter, verse 2, went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of the uncircumcised men and ate with them? So they're thinking that this was the old program. They would have to be, uh, become uh, Jews. Um, and, and he has some explaining to do. Um, 
Some of you will know this immediately. I Love Lucy, one of my favorite shows, one of the best sitcoms of all time. So you young people, if you've never seen this, you gotta go out to all those different uh, methods and find the I Love Lucy. So this is uh, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz married in real life. They had this, this television show. And uh, oftentimes Lucy would get in trouble with her husband. And so there was just one thing that he would always say to her when she got in trouble. He go to her with this condescending look in his eye. He said, Lucy, you got some explaining to do. And so he's, he's Cuban American, so he's got this little English Spanish thing. And so what's happening here in this text is that Peter's got some explaining to do because this is unprecedented amongst Jews. This is a new paradigm altogether. So he's gonna to have to slow things down and explain to them how this came to pass. And so that's what he does in this text. He says, listen, uh, I was at Sam, Simon the Tanner's house. It was on the sea. And you know how he has this great view of the sea from his house? I was up on the roof, it was about midnight. Excuse me, it was about midday. And I, went, I fell into this trance and I saw this sheet come down. And on this sheet were all these foods that are unclean for us to eat. Reptiles and birds and all kinds of animals. And then I hear this strange voice in my trance saying, Peter, rise up and eat. And I say, certainly not, Lord. I'm an adult man, I have never violated the Jewish food laws, certainly not. And then I hear this voice even stranger say to me, do not call Peter what I have made clean, unclean. And so this happens, and this happens two more times, because you know Peter, he's kind of hard-headed, kind of stubborn in his ways. This happens two more times, and right after then, three people from Caesarea come knocking at his door. And they come to the door and they say, listen, we've been sent by uh, the, the, the centurion, and he's basically said to us that, listen, um, we, we are to hear from Peter. Is there a man named Peter here? Because we're supposed to come, we're supposed to take him, bring him back to Caesarea from Joppa, and he's going to preach to us the gospel. And so Peter says, hmm, because it is totally against the law for him to as associate with the Jews. The spirit has to tell him it's okay for you to walk with these people. It's okay with you to, for you to walk with them to, to, to Caesarea. So he does. And when he gets there, he meets the centurion. And he says to him, listen, um, I also got a strange vision, something that has never happened to me before. Um, in a vision, I had this man saying, listen, I know about your gifts and what you have done for the Jewish people and your faith. Now send to Joppa, find these, this man, and he's gonna preach the gospel to you and you're gonna come to faith. And so, he, so, so here Peter is listening to his testimony, and God is talking to the Gentiles and the Jews at the same time. He's being very intentional about making this gospel go cross-cultural. And so right where he went, in the midst of his sermon, in the midst of Peter's sermon, to the centurion and his friends and family, in the, right in the midst, the Holy Spirit comes. And they receive the Spirit just like Peter and the Jewish Christians did in Jerusalem. And he says to himself, man, I remember what Jesus said. He said that John would baptize with the Spirit, but that Jesus Christ, would, we would be baptized, John would baptize with water, excuse me, but that, that, that we would be baptized with the Spirit. So he sees the same things happening. And then he says this, and this convinces his friends. So if God gave them the same gift he gave to us who believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, 
they had no further objections. You should have in the mind that this is a contentious discussion, that they're kind of up in arms about this. But when they hear this testimony, and he's got six friends right behind him to support it, when they heard this, they had no further objections, and their criticism turns to praise. And they praise God, saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And so as Nick had preached last week, God is showing that there is no favoritism between Jew and Gentile, that everyone must come to him on the same basis through hearing the gospel, through faith, through receiving the Holy Spirit. There is no favoritism. They all come in the same way. And what Jewish people are faced and they're, they're charged with doing something that you and I have to do every day, which is to change from our own conceptions of what we think is true and how we think the, the, the world works and reconcile it to the gospel. When you come and hear Nick preach or, or another minister that God sends it your, your way, when I come, it shouldn't be that rare that you are asked to change how you think and change how you behave in face of God's reality. Uh, this happens to me quite a bit. There's two major areas I want to share with you in some transparency. One of them is in my parenting. I have this tendency to parent in ways that God would not be pleased with. So here's, here's what the, the Bible has to say about parenting. A couple of verses. Ephesians 6 and 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. You know, let Jesus be the standard and the Word be the standard. Right? Proverbs 22 and 16. Start children off on the way they should go. And even when they are old, they will not turn from it. So I have turned that 22 and 6 into this. Uh, send them on the way his mom and I went. So I'll have these arguments with my, my kids, or I'll have these discussions with my oldest son. And I'll say, Jason, you know, you're starting to look at colleges. Why don't you look at the best college in the world, the University of Illinois, where your mother and father went, right? You know? And I'll say to my kids, I'll say to my kids, all right, you're, you're thinking about what to do. Well, well, why don't you study business? That's what I studied. And, and, and you know how it even really gets worse. I'll be talking to Jason, and I'll be saying, you know, you're, you're thinking about careers. Well, what about the ministry? What about going into preaching? And then that's what my son will really get. He's like, no, listen, Dad, you better, you better go sell that to Jared. I'm not going to do that, you know? <laughs> And even in discipline, this is how insidious this gets. You know, I'll be disciplining my kids, and I'll be thinking in my mind that the sins that I did when I was a college student are better than the sins that, that they're doing. It's silliness, complete, utter silliness. And so we're being asked to reconcile ourselves all the time to what the gospel says, which is that I should raise my children to have the character of Jesus Christ, faithfulness and perseverance and love and so forth. I should train them how to hear the Spirit and, and walk in the Spirit. That's my charge, not to make them like me and my wife. And there's another area that this shows up for me too. Um, it's in my dependence on God. Uh, this first showed up for me about 14 years ago. And when my company restructured how I got paid and I was watching my income slide, and I had a solution to it. It was a real simple solution. I had a buddy of mine that was with the same company in St. Louis. I know he would take care of me financially. So we started talking. It was a done deal. And then I started praying. And when I prayed to God, 
it was very clear to me that I wasn't supposed to go. See, I wasn't thinking about my kids and their schools. I wasn't thinking about my, my wife and her relationship with her parents. I wasn't thinking about my parents. All my family is in Illinois. All I was worried about was my career and my income. It was a, no, it was a no-brainer. Any, anybody who's a careerist would have known it was a no-brainer, but not to God. He was like, no, I want you to learn how to depend on me. And so for another five more years, I stayed in the same job and watched my income slide. And it was my wife said, she's not smiling. She remembers those days. But it was all intended that I would learn to depend on God and not my own ingenuity. Here's what the Bible says about this. Proverbs 3 and 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and all your ways to submit to him. And he will make your path straight. 2012 comes up. And I'm here. I'm an elder at the church. And an opportunity comes up for me to go work with a competitor. They're going to pay me 25% more, give me a big raise. Back home in my hometown, I could do this job with my, you know, in my sleep. No problem. No brainer. And then I start praying. And it's very clear to me. God was like, Lord, hang in there. This is not the time. I said, Lord, are you kidding me? Don't you see? Can you add? That's another X thousand dollars. <laughs> Lord, not the time. Hang in there. 18 months later, God calls me into full-time ministry. I finished my degree at Wheaton College. He calls me into full-time ministry. This is what the Word says. But what happens for me, and what I think happens to you sometime, if you're honest about it, is that you'll have your own version of the Bible. So this is what I wish the Word said. This is what I wish. And this is the Lloyd Biddle version. This isn't available for you yet. You can't buy it. Maybe I should sell this version. Proverbs 3 and 5. Trust in the Lord when it's easy to do. And when it feels right. But count on yourself when the going gets tough. When things really, when I really start getting stressed, when, when, when there's real difficulties, when I'm really pinched, then that's when I get really self-sufficient. But that isn't what God would call me to do. That's when I really need to turn things over to God. To still work, but in faith. Count on yourself when the going gets tough is what I had to fight against. In all your ways, seek him and he will make everything easy for you, all right? So what we see happening here in this particular text is that God is upsetting the ways in which the Jewish Christians had thought the gospel would work. And he's saying, no, this is, a, this is my truth and you are to embrace my truth, I don't embrace your truth. So that's the first thing, that's the first observation that we make from this text. And here's the second, that the gospel, spirit given this new people's goal is through God's power to preach the gospel cross-culturally and establish the first multi-ethnic churches. Now, we mentioned earlier that this notion of the gospel going to the world was an old notion. In fact, not too many years earlier, Christ had told them before he ascended that this was the plan. You will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the world. And Adiak was the beginning of the ends of the world. It was going to be the place where worldwide missions would be formed was from Antioch. And he also said this in Matthew 18 and 19. Go make disciples of all nations. So this was the plan. But what they didn't have in mind or didn't quite understand was how this would happen. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, 
traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. But some of them, however, men from Cyprus, which was an island in the middle of the Mediterranean, and men from Antioch, which was about 300 miles north of uh, Jerusalem, began to, to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus, and the Lord's hand was with them. So, so some of them began to plant a church, a multi-ethnic church in Antioch, and God was blessing it. And you need to know something about Antioch. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Rome was number one, Alexandria in Egypt was number two. Number three was this city, Antioch, 300 miles from Jerusalem, 500,000 people, 72,000 Jews. The rest were Greeks and Romans and Persians and Arabs. It was a very multicultural city you should have in your mind, someplace like New York or someplace like Chicago or someplace like Las Vegas. Tremendously diverse ripe to have a multicultural church. It's in that context that they begin establishing the, uh, a multicultural church. Now, multiculturalism, why this is important? Well, it's one of our church's values. And here's what we've said. Here's what we said at High Point Church about multiculturalism. We believe that the gospel calls all people from all races and cultures into unity in Christ and fellowship in his church. And this is what God has been showing those Jewish Christians in chapters 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. That's the first part. Therefore, we intentionally seek and value diversity in our congregation by designing and leading ministries in ways that will help fulfill this value. Now, there's a lot of work that's been done the last 10 years, 20 years, about what is a multicultural church. What exactly is, is it? And there's a lot of sociologists who've been studying the church. This particular preeminent sociologist is at Rice University. He's probably the top uh, person who studies the church and makes, uh, uh, does research and, and, and publishes implications about the church. He, here's how he defines a multiracial church. He says, a church is multiracial when no one racial group has 80% or more of the congregation, or, if said another way, at least 20% of, of the people are of a different race or races. So here's what Emerson and researchers have done in study after study. What they said is, in a group of, of minorities, they have a voice, their voice actually permeates the organization when about 20% of the people are of a different group. When 20% are there, their voice actually infiltrates the organization, whether it be a business, they found this true in business, nonprofits, and in the church. And so that's where this, this marker comes from. And Emerson in his research has shown that when a church is multicultural, there are five specific benefits to society. And I, I wanna run through these five benefits that Emerson has found in his research for you. The first thing is he says, there's massive social change in social ties. So in our times when there's this racial tension, police profiling, shootings, and so forth, and challenges, one of the best ways to, to deal with this is to change how we relate to each other. Massive social change. So he did a study, 2,500 people. And in the study, 83% went to church at same race churches. And the question was this, tell me who your friends are. Do you have your best friends or most of your friends or any friends? And 83% and, and of them said that most of my friends or all of my friends are of the same race. 
Then they talked to uh, 70% of the people who were folks who didn't go to church. And they said, 70% said, their friends, or all of them, or most of them were of the same race. But then they talked to people that were in interracial churches. And they said something different. What they said is that only 36% of their friends were from just one race. And so what, is, what has happened in interracial churches, and, and Emerson was so astounded by this, he pressed it a little further. He said, did you change the way you thought about your friends before? Are you, were you just the kind of person who just likes to, to be multicultural and you're, you're more exploratory and you went to a most racial church? They said, no, we actually went to the church and the church's impact on me was it changed my friendship networks. So that fellowship and friendship is what breaks down social barriers. That's the first thing Emerson found. Second thing is this, organizational home for multiracial families. So Emerson does all this research. And it's funny, I was just talking to Nick about this in between services. In his research, as he talked with interracial families, those that married interracially or adopted kids, they were, they were constantly saying, you know, we have this massive challenge. When we have to choose a church, we feel like we have to choose one heritage over another. And it's really heartbreaking for us. And what multicultural churches do, because they value diversity, they, they, they don't have to deal with that tension. They can just choose a church that embraces all people. And this is becoming more and more important. In fact, Nick said this year he did seven weddings. One of them was interracial, um, a, a, a Russian person marrying an American. And the other three were multicultural. Four out of seven dealt with this issue of multiculturalism. So organizational home for families. The, the third issue is group formation and solidarity. What happens is when people begin to go to multiracial churches, who they think of as their tribe begins to change. And so as opposed to African-American really seeing their, their closest knit of people being African-Americans or Hispanics or Asians or whites, when they come to a church that's multicultural and when they begin to establish relationships of love and brotherhood, their whole notion of who their tribe is changes. And so now they begin to see their tribe as us in diversity and not us in our homogeneity. And so that those particular churches tend to be a living reality of what the verse says in Colossians 3.11. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and, and is in all. And so in these multiracial churches, this actually takes on another level of meaning because these people live it out in community all the time. Here's the fourth one. It alters their racial, their racial attitudes. Rodney Wu is an Anglo-Chinese pastor of uh, Willcrest Baptist Church he, uh, from 1992 to 2011. He was a pastor. He started at age 29. They have 48, when he left, 48 nations represented in his church. From time to time in his church, he would hear grumblings and one group of people would say things not so nice about another group of people. And he came up with a plan to break it down. He said, listen, when we do missions, we're going to only go to missions where people within our church are represented. And those people who are from that community, from that nation, they're going to lead the missionary charge. So in his church, it just so happened that there were Guatemalans that were in charge of, they were the janitors at the church. And so what he did is we're going to Guatemala and we're putting them in charge. 
And so they had a diverse group of short-term missionaries that went. Right? And when they got there, the Guatemalans knew the language, the Guatemalans knew the food, the Guatemalans knew the community, the Guatemalans knew the lay of the land, and all of a sudden these other people had a greater appreciation for their expertise. In their, in their eyes, they were elevated. And so this issue is that in multicultural context, we begin to stop looking at people with stereotypes, and we begin to see them as they are. Wu puts it this way, all church members have a purpose, but individually, we are not all things to everyone. But collectively, as the church, we are everything to everyone. The notion is that there's a rich heritage that God has given us by saving souls in every nation where his gospel has went. And when we fellowship together in local congregations, we can do more from the world. We can be more for the world is his position. So the question becomes, these are all these tremendous benefits that sociologists today have found that are ascribed to an old idea, an old ancient idea, the multicultural church that goes back to the earliest days of the church. So then the question is, how do we create such a church? How do we get ourselves to, to do this kind of thing? And what we see in our text is that we love, learn how to love sincerely despite their cultural differences. So what happens in this particular situation is that the church in Jerusalem hears about what's going on in Antioch and they send Barnabas, the son of encouragement. He goes, he's excited about what he sees. And he remembers his friend, Paul of Tarsus, just a few miles north of Antioch. And he remembers that he's got a specific call on his life to minister to the Gentiles. That's his call. So he goes and gets him and says, listen, we got all these new Christians. Imagine if we were just new Christians were boiling in here. What would be our first consideration? And we got to get our discipleship in, in gear. You know, we got to really start discipling. And so he goes and he gets the best discipler he knows, Paul. And Paul comes and the scripture says he trains for a year. And at the end of a year's time, Somebody comes from the church in Jerusalem named Angabus, the prophet, and he prophesies to the people that there's a big famine that's gonna come. It's gonna impact the whole Roman world. But in particular, it's gonna have a tremendous impact on the Jewish Christians who have the, the meagerest and the least amount of resources. And he just lays it out there. And then now this multicultural church that has learned to love each other over the year, you know, studying the gospel, I have in my mind that they were studying things like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16. I know Paul is probably still working out the gospel message that God has, him, has for him. But in my mind, he's teaching them things like this during that year. He's teaching them what the Bible says. For he himself is our peace. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 who has made two groups one and has destroyed the barrier. The dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, by setting aside circumcision, by setting aside dietary food laws, by setting aside the festivals, by setting aside these regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death his hostility. So in my mind, over that one year's period, 
He's telling the people how they became one in Jesus Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection, and how God has set aside these natural, racial, cultural barriers in his blood. He teaches them that, that message in a year, and after a year's done, they're ready. And so now they see themselves as his brothers. Now listen now, listen, these are Arabs and Persians along with Jews, right? And Romans and Greeks, and they don't know the people in Jerusalem. They never, many of them probably never been to Jerusalem. But they, because out of love of Christ and this transformation of the Holy Spirit and the teaching of the gospel, they come out of their pockets, every one of them, and they give what they can. And they give an offering for the church in Jerusalem. And think about this, not only does this bless the church in Jerusalem, but it also cements the love between the Jews and the Gentiles there. They really get that they love each other sacrificially. So that's what's happening at Antioch. And it's no wonder, with all of that going on, that the world hasn't seen this kind of breaking down of cultural barriers. It's no wonder that it was at this church that the disciples were first called Christians or followers of Christ. In fact, I kind of like the way uh, Mark DeMoss puts this. He says, Mark DeMoss is a pastor of a multicultural church thriving in Little Rock, Arkansas. He's written a book called Building Healthy Multi-Ethnic Churches. Here's what he says. He says, so at Antioch, Jews were loving Gentiles, Gentiles were loving Jews, and they were all worshiping God together as one local church 2,000 years ago. Yes, this was an amazing thing. Damas has, has written a book on this, How to Build Healthy Multi-Ethnic Churches. And he says there are seven things that are important. I'm gonna briefly mention these and then I'm gonna tell you the three out of my 30 years of experience in the church. Starting with a multicultural church, Catholic church in Oak Park, Illinois, and four evangelical churches, two of which had a stated value to be multicultural. I'm gonna, get, I'm gonna boil it down for, to you to the three things that I think are crucial in the modern context of breaking down ethnic and racial and cultural barriers and spreading the gospel in one local congregation, okay? Here's what he says, the seminar. Embrace dependence on God. He said, this is a move of God, not of men. In our text this morning, we, we see that God's hand was on it. Take intentional steps. This won't happen accidentally. Multiculturalism doesn't happen accidentally. God sent those evangelists to that church. Barnabas went and got Paul to disciple them. It didn't happen accidentally. There were intentional steps. Empower diverse leadership. From the pulpit down through the nursery. And this takes time, especially if your church is, is homogenous. It takes time to do this. But this is one of the requirements. Develop cross-cultural relationships. Pursue cross-cultural competence. Learn about different cultures. Promote a spirit of inclusion. In particular, Demas talks about the notion of how music has to be done within the context of the worship service. That it needs to embrace people of other cultures. And lastly, mobilize for impact. For that he means really go out and make disciples of all nations. Really let that be the aim. He says, those are the seven commitments. Well, I want to say to you that there's three. But before that, there's a smiley face. Now, if you've ever been to a High Point congregational meeting, you will know that Walt Peffer, who used to be our treasurer, would always put this smiley face up when the finances were going really good at the church. 
the finances are going really good at the church. And so I want to invite you to come to the congregational meeting uh, this, this evening. In addition, uh, Rivers of Living Water will be there. This will be an opportunity for us to increase our cultural competence and see how that Spanish church is doing here that meets here around 2 o'clock every Sunday. So come to the congregational meeting. That was my last commercial. Here are my three things. Hearts are all in. I went to the Willow Creek uh, Global Leadership Summit, and Bill Hybels had a session with the, the guy who started the movement, Hillsong movement, Brian Houston. And they had a session about how music um, impacts leaders. And Bill has said that over his 30, 40 plus year ministry, there's been these low dark periods and that it hasn't so much been the word of God that has helped him get over, hasn't so much been the kind words of his brothers and sisters, it's been music that has helped transition him. And so in this session, he played some of his favorite songs that helped him overcome darkness. And so Brian Houston, with all those Hill songs, songs, he chose his one or two favorites. What we know about, about this is that we are all uh, deeply entrenched in our own culture's ways of doing things. It's natural. In order to overcome what is a natural thing for us, to love your own culture and respect all of its artistic forms, your heart really has to be in to this whole idea of embracing other people. Your hearts have to be in. That's the first thing that needs to happen. The second thing that has to happen is that the leadership needs to become multiracial. All the experts say that this happens over time. Damas calls it empowering diverse leadership. I think in many ways our church has been blessed with that, with me being here. If you look at our worship team, it's, since I've been here, it's been very diverse. There's all kinds of ways in which God has, has done that at our church. But leadership in the church must be multiracial. And the last thing is this. The music must be designed to appeal to the entire fellowship, not just the majority group. In some ways, I feel like this is the hardest one because music really impacts our hearts and all of us have our favorite songs that probably come out of our traditions. But multicultural churches are able to bring all people in. They're able to work at this. It's, not, it's an art more than a science and they're able to bring people in. And Mark DeMoss talks about this this way with his church. Now Mark is an Anglo pastor out of Arizona who after 20 years as a youth pastor, people told him that he should start a new church, and he did. Well-meaning believers will often describe themselves as open to diversity and open to having anyone who so desires become a part of their church, their church. However, the unintended obstacle to this otherwise sincere belief is a lack of proactive consideration of diverse individuals who may walk through the doors. In other words, in most of our uh, homogeneous congregations, we're not even thinking about how people of other backgrounds are experiencing what we're going on. The statement, we would welcome anyone here, is in most cases more accurately translated. We would welcome anyone here as long as they like who we are, what we do, and how we do it. In other words, we welcome anyone to join us as long as they are willing to conform to our ways, but don't expect us to conform to theirs, he concludes. And nowhere is this attitude more pronounced 
then in the congregation's approach to worship, and in particular he's talking about the music, to build a healthy multi-ethnic church then, it is in worship that leaders must begin to promote a spirit of inclusion. So my three is that to be multicultural, for us to continue to make progress towards welcoming internationals and welcoming in Hispanics and blacks and Asians, for us to continue to make progress, I think those three things, a heart has to be in it, our leadership needs to reflect diversity, and we need to deal with the music in terms of embracing people in. Those would be the three. And then I wanna just conclude with this. The church in Antioch, what God did is he created a new people. He didn't tell the Gentiles that they had to be Jews. And he did tell the Jews that things were different. And they showed us by making sacrifice how they can embrace all people into one group. And um, that's the example that, that is there for us. By the Spirit, in our lives and times, by sacrifice and love, we can experience the benefits that come from, from being multicultural in our lives and times, both in the big C, the church universal, and the little C, the local church. Let us pray. Lord, uh, what I appreciate about you is this, how gentle you are with the Jewish Christians as you begin to break down their beliefs about you and how salvation in you works. Uh, Lord, you were persistent, but you were gentle as you showed Peter and the disciples over and over again that the gospel was new, that you were laying aside ceremonial laws and other cultural trappings for the heart of the gospel, which is faith in Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and the receipt of the Holy Spirit. And, and all Christians can say amen to that. We thank you for that newness that you created. We thank you for inspiring us and showing us that the multicultural church is an old idea. It's as old as Antioch. It's as old as our discussions of Peter. It's as old as the Holy Spirit coming on the day of Pentecost and inspiring us that we can be a part of that work that you are doing across the globe. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.